0: Welcome to the Sailing and Cruising the East Coast of the United States podcast. I'm Bala Musitz. And I'm Mike Wasserman. This is our podcast about sailing the East Coast of the United States. In some episodes, we will focus on passages and destinations. In o- other episodes, we'll talk about boats, equipment, and techniques. And when we come across an interesting person, we'll try to get them to be a guest on the show. But before we dive into this episode, we need to say a special thank you to our supporters, several listeners. Have made a monthly financial contribution to supporting the podcast and help defray the cost of producing these episodes. And we now have a Patreon page. So supporting the podcast is super easy. Just go to patreon.com forward slash sailing the East. And thank you again to all of our supporters.
1: Yep. Thanks, Bela. Now, I'm always excited to hear the big announcement. Who are we talking with on this episode?
0: Well, today we have a guest. Uh, it's not just you and I, and I think it's a fascinating guest. A person's name is Peter Gibbons Neff and Peter has entered the 2023 mini transat race, Mike. And this is a race where, where sailors sail across the Atlantic ocean. They start in France. They finish in, uh, Guadalupe in the Caribbean on a 21 foot boat. And they do this solo.
1: Wait, 21 feet across the ocean? Yeah. That's like the size of my desk. <laughs> yes. yes. Unbelievable. Mike. How many Wait. miles is that?
0: It's like 4,000 miles. They do stop in, in the Canary Islands, so they depart from France. Uh, they sail down to the Canaries, which I think is like 1,500 miles or so, mm-hmm. and then from the Canaries to Guadeloupe in the Caribbean. So, uh, yeah, it's... it's it's To me, it's mind-boggling, right? It's just Okay, but
1: enough. Let's hear it from Peter's voice. So, all right, I think let's get right to it, Bela. Sounds good.
0: Hello, Peter. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Bella. thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Yeah, sure. I'm, I'm glad uh, we could make the time to do this on your busy schedule. So let me ask you a question. If you're at a social event, so a non-work-related social event, and you get introduced to someone, And after that introduction, they say to you, very nice to meet you, Peter. What do you do?
2: How do you answer that question? Uh, That's a great question. Uh, It definitely depends on the audience. Um, I say I do a few things right now, but my main focus is I have a campaign to race across the Atlantic Ocean uh, to raise awareness for U.S. Patriot sailing. So that's my main focus right now. And, you know, I treat it like a job. I'm not getting paid for it but it's definitely a full-time job right now. And then I'm also a reserve officer in the Marine Corps as well. So part of the year I spend uh, putting the uniform back on and I'm an intelligence officer in the Marine Corps reserves. So that's, that's really what I do. Okay. So
0: tell us a little bit about this race, uh, put, peel that, peel that
2: onion back a few more layers for us. Sure. So I'm getting ready to race in the mini transat this September and the mini transat is a solo ocean race across the Atlantic ocean, it's a 4,050 nautical mile long race in a 21-foot sailboat. And you're not out there by yourself. Well, there's times we don't see anyone, but it's with 90 boats, uh, international boats, um, but from France across Atlantic to Guadeloupe. Um, so it's a really big French ocean race, mostly French. Uh, French, there's a few Spanish, Italians, and then um, a scattering of other people from around the world doing this race as well. But it's 90 boats. We're all 21 feet. Uh, part of the class of mini 650 and that's essentially like a box rule type thing. Mm. Uh, And so it's 90 boats. um, Yeah. And it's a big process to get to it, which I'm sure we'll get into all that as well. But, uh, but yeah, that's the big race. Yeah. So uh, does this happen every year, every other year, what's sort of the frequency? So it happens every other year and it's been going on every other year since 1977. So it's not a new race. It's a time tested, you know, it's an established French solo ocean race. And it's important because, you know, it's a really tough race to do. It's a really big accomplishment to do. Uh, but it's also the one of the main feeder, essentially a feeder classes to the bigger level professional ocean racing on the French side of things as well. Oh, I so see. a lot of people that do this race move up to the Figaro 3 to the Class 40 and then the Mocha, you you know, people that know about the Vende Globe and things like that. A lot of those racers came from this class.
0: Ah, I see. I see. So uh does it fill up every year? I mean, do they
2: get 90 people? Is there a waiting list? Yeah, it's actually really really hard to qualify and it's been getting even harder the last couple of years. So going into this race, over 150 people pre-registered for those 90 spots. Wow. And we so the sign up started in January and from the uh like that first moment, half the fleet was already um, essentially, so the, there's prototypes and series on part of the series class, the series boats were already filled up, um, right as the qualification or right as the, uh, registration period opened. So for most people, you have to do this to three, two to three years out to qualify, to do enough qualifying miles in the races over here. So yes, it fills up fast and it's been filling up faster every year or every, you know, every race cycle. And it's yeah. been harder and harder to get into. Holy smokes.
0: So has it always been uh, the same uh, box rule for boats or has there been bigger boats, smaller
2: boats? No, it's always been the box rule. So it's six and a half meters long by three meters wide. And so I'm part of the series class, which is the production boats. And so for that, it's a box rule within that, but then each production boat has to have at least 10 of those boats made to Mm. be eligible to race in this class. So my boat's a RG 650. I think as of right now, I'm probably the only RG650 signed up for it, but there's at least 10 of those around the world that were already made and they have to get inspected by the class at the boat builders and things like that. So that's the production boat, um, fiberglass boats, aluminum rig, uh, still high performance, you know, we, big asymmetric spinnaker, big flat, flat top main, running backstays, things like that, um, but definitely more controlled to help with the cost essentially. And then the other half of the fleet, the 90 boats, is the prototypes, which are uh, strictly box rule. You can build a one-off prototype if you want. And those are carbon fiber, taller rig, canning keels, water ballast if you want it, um, and now even foils on them too. So they're starting to foil. So yeah. that's a lot more expensive, a lot more higher cost, a lot more developmental kind of focused. And it's great because the, the concepts learned from that prototype class. Eventually move into the production class as best as they can within the rules. So it's really interesting to see the different kind of boats. But the fun thing is, that we all start every single t- mini race we do, whether it's the mini transit or a smaller race. We all cross the starting line at the same time, so all the boats leave. So you might have a really fast prototype right next to you on the starting line that you have to deal with as well. So it really it really factors into the whole starting strategy, and it makes it for an interesting start. Yeah, yeah, holy smokes! And uh, where, where's the endpoint? I, I I forgot. It's in Guadeloupe. Guadeloupe.
0: Okay, yeah,
2: so in the Caribbean. And what time of the year does this happen? So the so it's a two stage race, but so the first stage starts in France on September September twenty fourth this year, and so we leave in uh, so end of September, uh, and the first leg goes down to the Canaries, uh, yeah. to Santa Cru- um, to uh, yeah Santa Cruz de La Palma, and so we stop there, rest, refit, fix anything that broke. And then a couple of weeks later, they actually restart the race, and then you do that second leg from the Canaries across the southern trade wind route to Guadeloupe. And so essentially the final the final um, scoring is done by combining the two times of both stages uh, for the race. okay? Wow. Yeah. So uh,
0: I, you know, I think a lot of people talk about preparing boats and you know, provisioning and all that kind of stuff. And that's all very, very important. I want to talk a little bit more about sort of the mental preparation and sort of the physiology that's going on here, both kind of the anxiety before you start <laughs> and then the anxiety at the start and, and, you know,
2: sort of what all goes through that. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, there's the, the mental aspect of it is huge and it's funny, you know, the, so this, you know, this whole campaign is focused on the minute transit, that race but so much of it leads up to it. I mean, I started this campaign. I bought the boat in September of 2020 and shipped it over to France. And I started this in the spring of 2021. And so from since that time, you know, the last two years, I've been thinking about this nonstop every day. Yeah. Um, you know, even if I'm not on the boat or sailing every day, I'm thinking about it every day. So when you think about like anxiety or the stress or everything that goes into building up to the mini transat it's a long process. And so that's definitely one big aspect and, you know, and not just sprinting through it and burning yourself out is a really important part. Um, But then leading up to the race itself, you know, there's, there's a, a mix of boats that, you know, wait till the last minute to get everything finished and prepped and all that kind of stuff. And there's boats fixing things, you know, the day before the race or getting, making improvements. And then there's other people that have planned it out a little bit farther ahead and, you know, try to focus more on, You know, getting rest before the race is really important. And then the weather study is super important going into it. Uh, But then there's also another aspect where you basically acknowledge that you will go through sleep deprivation in this race. You know it. Uh, Because every time you sleep or take a nap, you have to assume you're not sailing the boat to the maximum potential. And essentially, every time you put your head down to take a nap, someone might be passing you. Right. Uh, and then part of that's also, they might be, you know, you don't want to hit another boat. You don't want to get hit by a ship. You don't want to run aground on the rocks. So there's so much that goes into it, but being prepared for that sleep deprivation is really important. But then also knowing what are your limits, figuring out your limits is a really important part to doing some of these smaller races that lead up, you know, across multiple seasons, learning yourself, learning your boat and how long you can go without sleeping. I've hit that limit a few times and now I know, okay, how close can I get to that again? And when I get to that, what do I need to back off? What do I need to do? Whether it's to the boat or to myself, and how do I prepare for it? And I think that's been the most important lesson learned. Um, because I've gone through times where I've started hallucinating and I've gone through times where I just can't physically stay awake and I'm waking up because I'm crash tacking, which is, you know, not good not when a the good thing, right? Yeah. Luckily I have runners, so the uh the boom slammed into the runner instead of my head, <laughs> uh, which is you know a scary thought. But Yeah. It's sometimes when you get that sleep deprivation, it's so hard to stay awake when you get to that certain point. But now that I know where that point is, that's, it's preparing for that moment um, or for that situation.
0: So, so for you, what are the warning signs that you're getting close to that point? What are the cues that you look for?
2: I think part of it is you can tell your, your brain is starting to slow down. You're not able to think through decisions as fast as quickly Your body starts slowing down a little bit. It's really hard to stay awake when you should be staying awake. Uh, You know, if you're driving, you use autopilot a lot, but you also try to drive when you can in certain conditions. And if you're falling asleep while you have the tiller in your hand, probably getting to that point. Uh, And so you can definitely feel your body starting to shut down and knowing when you're getting to that before you get to that point. Uh, Because, you know, there's some nights out there where you just know you're not going to be able to sleep. Right. So maybe it's you know before a storm comes, try to bank some of that sleep. Try to take some more naps during the day before the storm comes. So things like that, and just trying to establish okay, how much sleep do I really need to get? Because there's some days out there where you might only get, you know, maybe two hours of sleep that night, and understanding what that means, or maybe even less than that. Uh, I mean, the last race I did, I didn't sleep at all. It was a you know just one overnight race. I didn't sleep at all and just pushed through the entire night. So like I, I can do that. But can you do that two nights in a row or three nights right. in a row? And is that your first night at sea? You might be able to do that. Or is that day eight or day nine at sea? And you might not be able to push that entire night. So absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And so
0: do you like, do you like keep a a, a daily log of number of hours? Right. Cause I, I know the times I, I need a lot of sleep. <laughs> so, so when I love I don't sleep. Get don't get me sleep, wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I get all confused. I lose sense of time. I mean, I, I really get scrambled. So do you, do you kind of keep a log and how, how do you kind of
2: track those things? So I don't necessarily keep a log, but I definitely stay in touch with that aspect of it. Um, now, let me rephrase that. I keep a log for the boat um, because that's actually yes. required. Yeah. And um, the class actually in, uh, spot checks afterwards. So when you finish a race, they spot check a few things to make sure you still have the required safety equipment, um, which gets sealed. You have safety water, survival water, they get sealed, your life raft. Things like that. Um, They even check to make sure you didn't move your batteries out of the way because they started uh, checking that as well. You know, and they seal them. But they also check your logbook or spot check the logbook to make sure that you're doing regular logs of you know your position, the you know weather conditions, things like that. But in terms of writing it down, I don't actually normally write it down. Um, But what I do is uh, I definitely have a really loud alarm clock, and so I have a kitchen timer essentially, and I'll take a series of I'll say like okay maybe for the next. Let's say for the next hour, I'm going to go into a sleep cycle. Within that hour of sleep, I'm waking up every ten to twelve minutes to look around, check the AIS, make sure there's no boats around, check the weather, make sure I don't need to you know change course or a sail trim or things like that. So you're waking up every ten to twelve minutes. Uh, so you know sometimes I'll write in there if I if I took like a sleep cycle sometimes like that, but not all the time though. But, yeah. but you can definitely tell if you're getting enough sleep or not.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I think I read that that you went to uh the Naval Academy. That's correct. And uh you're a Marine. That's yep. And so how has how has that experience helped you prepare for something like this?
2: Uh I think it was another opportunity. Well, so a combination of things. So from the Naval Academy, I was on the offshore sailing team for four years. And that was a really great opportunity to further develop offshore sailing. I had a lot of great experiences with that. And, you know, Annapolis, Newport race, Newport Bermuda race, things like that. So both from the sailing point of getting a boat ready to go offshore and racing offshore uh, from a, you know, also leadership standpoint, that was a really great leadership laboratory, yeah. learning how to lead other people and, you know, making those calls of you know for safety and things like that, which... You know even though I'm not leading anyone else on this boat right now, I still have to make the same calls for myself and risk management. I think that was a big part of it for the risk management. Uh but then on the marine side, a big part of it again, yeah, risk management, but then also the sleep management part of it too. Cause there's been, you know, for the first year and a half of uh my time in the Marine Corps, I was going through training uh to be an intelligence officer. And that required a, you know, Go through the infantry officers course and go through that whole thing where we definitely went through sleep deprivation out there and a lot of late nights hiking and doing ranges and things like that. Where um, you know, th- those are some of my first experiences of really going through sleep deprivation. But then also going on deployments, you know, um, like back in 2014, I spent nine months in Afghanistan on a deployment and you know. You got to get over those nine months. You got to get sleep sometimes. So you got to learn. And I remember my first boss during that time was telling me, hey, my last intel officer, he used to sleep on a sleeping pad underneath the desk for his entire deployment. So I expect the same thing from you. And it's like, oh, gosh, like, (laughs) what did I get myself into? This is gonna be a long, long nine months. But uh, Yeah. yeah, so there's definitely a lot of skills from the military from the Naval Academy that have definitely carried over. And I think I definitely had to also relearn some of them because I didn't go offshore sailing for about 10 years leading up to all of this, this whole campaign. I yeah. definitely stopped sailing for a little part of that. And so I had to relearn some of those uh, hard lessons.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So what about, we talked a little bit about sleep, managing your sleep, sleep deprivation. What about other other sort of physical fitness things? What, what, what are you doing
2: uh, from that perspective? So I think a really important part to going to these races is the physical fitness aspect. I mean, there's plenty of people that are out of shape, um, that, you know, don't focus on that seriously. And, you know, you can get by with that, but it doesn't mean it's going to be effective. And if I can get any little advantage, I can being in good shape definitely helps. So I've definitely been you know working out over here, but I also have to maintain my you know physical fitness for the Marine Corps as well as a reserve officer. Okay. Uh, so I have to do, you know, our yearly physical fitness tests and things like that. So I definitely have a forcing function to stay in shape, but then I also want to apply that to the sailing side as well. So the being in shape is really important. And then also hydration and nutrition, eating the right food and eating, you know, at the right times, things like that. Uh, because I've also been out there where I haven't eaten enough or I've gotten dehydrated and your body just wants to shut down. You can't think right. And that's where you, the risk management gets really dangerous out there quickly.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So let's talk about nutrition. You brought
0: that up a little bit. Uh, Say a few words about sort of what you're doing there uh, and sort of, you know, what you've done leading up to it and then what you're going to be doing at the race.
2: So, I mean, leading up to it, just trying to eat healthy in general. But for the race itself, I eat primarily probably about 90 percent of the food I eat is freeze dried food. So it's I have a a jet boil, which I boil water, make a little cup of water. Put it in the freeze-dried food packet, and about eight to ten minutes later, you have a a nice meal ready to go. And I actually really like the freeze-dried food. I know a lot of people don't like it, but after eating MREs in the Marine Corps, uh, <laughs> once you go from MREs to actually freeze-dried food that you choose and buy yourself, it tastes way better. So that's my main source of uh, food. I probably have I, I balance between three to four meals a day, uh, and I normally go for about like the 450 calorie meals. So depending on what the weather, if it's lighter weather, I'll do, you know, breakfast, lunch, dinner. If if it's heavier weather, I'll probably have a midnight meal, you know, get more calories in there. Uh, really all depends. And then also if I know bad weather's approaching, start stocking up on the you know mm. the calories. So I start eating a lot because I know once that bad weather hits, I'm probably not going to eat maybe for 12 hours, maybe for, you know, I've gotten good at making the food during the bad weather. But a lot of times in the the worst of it, you want to be on deck sailing, you know, putting a reef in the sail and trimming correctly and make, you know, trying to prevent something from breaking on the boat and just getting through it. It's a really important aspect of it. So being prepared and not going into that situation hungry is crucial. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Uh,
2: So what about, uh,
0: let's just talk for a few minutes about sort of safety equipment, sort of what are the things, you know, that they require you to have? And then what are maybe some additional things, if any, that, that you may have
2: had? Yeah, sure. So they, so this class takes safety really, really seriously. So I know everyone thinks that not everyone, but a lot of people think, you know, the mini transat or this kind of solo racing is crazy. Like who are those crazy people out there? What are they doing? But they take safety very, very seriously to the point that every race we do, whether it's a 200 mile race or 2000 mile race, uh, we have safety inspections before every single race. And so you have to go through a long checklist, depending on what length of, or, you know, class of race it is. Uh, but for the mini transat, we have a long multi-page list um, that they go through. And if you don't pass it, they're not going to let you race. And they go through everything from, you know, life rack, flares, uh, ditch bags, survival water, food, things like that. So it is a very substantial list. And we take, I mean, we have everything that you might take for a new Bermuda race and more. So for instance, you know, we have to have a certain, um, the type of life raft has to be, you know, the approved life raft for going offshore. So, you know, I have a large four man life raft for my little 21 foot boat, which is, you know, pretty big in the back of that thing. Yeah. Uh, But it's because it has to have all that additional food and water within the life raft so that you can survive on it for however long you might need to. So they take uh, safety very seriously. Uh, And we have, I mean, yeah, we have a lot, a lot of safety equipment on the boat. Uh, I think the big difference, though, on these boats is every time we tack, jibe, the wind increases, decreases, we are shifting the weight all around the boat. So every piece of safety equipment I have, food, water, clothes, all that, I'm shifting from either side of the boat every single time I tack or Mm -hmm. jibe, which I think is a lot different than some of the bigger boats you have. The only thing you can't move, really, is the life raft and the batteries. But other than that, you can essentially move everything in the boat. So, so doing attack is really a lot of work. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, and you got to place it, you know, trying to place it as far outboard and maybe center of the boat or farther back, depending if you're going upwind or downwind in the light air, we push everything all the way forward, trying to get the stern out of the water. Um, And so, you know, as the wind speed changes, you got to move the weight down below. So, yeah, absolutely. There's a lot that goes into it. Oh, wow. Yeah. I never, I never thought of that, that you
0: would be doing something like that.
2: And so when you're yeah. short tacking, you think about, you know, you're burning calories, energy. Yeah. It takes a lot of energy to tack and to drive these boats uh, yeah. and move everything around. And uh, what's the routing like? Is
0: it, is it basically left up to each individual sailor? Are there certain marks you have to go around? Or is it start line and take the rum line straight into the, to the board you're trying to go?
2: So for the mini transat, it's generally going to be the start and finish line. Uh, there, there will be some, uh, places that you have to avoid. So traffic separation schemes, for sure. instance, around Cape or yeah. things like that. They have no go areas. Uh, and that's pretty similar for the races out here too. So for some of more of like the coastal offshore races we have in France, you might have a couple of marks you got to go around or islands, but for the mini transit itself, it's pretty far, it's pretty left open. And to put it in perspective, um, last year, the big race, the off year race is from France to the Azores and back two stages. And going from the Azores back to France, that was a 1,300-mile-long you know, race. Halfway through it, the fleet had a 500-mile lateral separation. Wow. So boats were off Cape Finisterre, off Spain, and other boats were up on the same latitude as Ireland. So when you think about leaving the routing up, you can go just about anywhere you want to go as long as you make it to the finish line. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Okay. So I assume uh, people have weather routers and people who have a land-based crew that helps them with these decisions. So
2: some people, I mean, you can have people help you with that ahead of time before the race. A lot of people, uh, but I mean, it's also the whole point of the, a a big part of this class is learning those skills yourself. So sure. You know, you you could pay a weather router if you want to, but you also got to really understand the weather yourself because you're out there by yourself. But the big difference between this race and a lot of the other races is We are not allowed to have any sort of satellite communications. We can't have a laptop on board. So we're not running expedition. We're not downloading grip files. So you can do all that you can, you know, I pull down grip files. I run routing before the races, but once you, um, cross the starting line, you don't have any of that. I mean, to the point where you turn your cell phone into the race committee and they give you your phone back at the finish line. Really? You know, what other race do you do that? Right. (laughs) Wow. So. So that, that's interesting, right? So you can have
0: AIS. So you can have some modern technology.
2: You have to have AIS. Yeah, they require yes. that. And you, so you can see the boats around you within VHF range, but yeah. you can't have any sort. You're not seeing the big fleet. You're not seeing the big picture. You're not downloading satellite data or anything like that. Yeah, but you're, you're, you're getting, getting a weather anything. forecast from the race committee, from the uh, single sideband radio. Oh, okay. So they do a daily or twice a day weather yeah. forecast. Yeah. So and they'll do a daily weather forecast and they'll kind of give big grids of, and they give you the, the, basically the grid format ahead of time. And so you can, and they basically uh, list out different grids, but you know, this, they'll give you the weather forecast for that center point of that, that box essentially, but the boxes might be a hundred, 200 miles apart from each other. So it's a yeah. pretty big difference, but they'll tell you where the, the center of the high, the center of the low, where the ridge is, where the cold front's coming. But it's pretty broad. I mean, they'll say, Hey, there's, there's a cold front. That's, you know, there's a low pressure system off of Dublin and the low pressure, the cold fronts going from Ireland down to Spain, you know, to this or to this center point or something like that. So they try to explain it to you and you have to write everything down, try to record it. If you can on a recorder, replay it 10 times to get it all. And then you're essentially drawing out the weather forecast of what they explained on your chart every single day trying to figure out, trying to interpret. That's the big thing is interpreting mm. what they're telling you. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's, that's a big aspect of it. So, so you are the weather router. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. And that's why you, re- I mean, that's why, you know, you could pay a weather router ahead of time, but when you're out there doing the race, you have to do it yourself. Yeah. yeah. You but most people aren't paying other people to, to do the routing or they'll have coaches like groups together that, that they'll ha- get similar routing ahead of time. But when you're out there, you're doing it all yourself. Yeah. And everybody gets
0: the same weather briefing.
2: Yes. Got yeah. it. And so the, and it. it's great because they do one in French and one in English every day, oh, which well, that's that really helps. <laughs> yes. Otherwise, you're there with your French to English dictionary trying to
0: figure this out.
2: Yeah. Oh, wow. And then they Very also nice. give a rankings every day, too. So you can kind of figure out where you're doing in the oh. rankings. But okay. it was pretty wild because that last race from the Azores back to France, when the boats were 500 miles apart from each other, one day you might be in 10th place, the next day you're in 60th place. And then the next day you're in 12th place because the latitude, you know, or the distance, the lateral distance was so far that uh, it was really hard for them to do the rankings for that one.
0: Yeah. Wow. Wow. So, so, okay, Peter, why? (laughs) I got to ask you the question, right?
2: Why are you doing this? So the biggest reason, I mean, there's a couple of different things that go into it, but the biggest reason for doing this is I'm racing as an ambassador to raise awareness for us Patriot sailing. So this is an awesome nonprofit organization that supports military veterans through sailing. And I have a really important tie to this because I've been sailing with them for the last couple of years and they were a really big part of helping me get through a couple of hard points in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, the first being going through a divorce while in the military um, You know, they were a great way to get out of the house, get back out on a boat, do some boat work, do some racing, Um, helped me really get back into the sailing community as well because doing the whole Marine thing, I was living in places that didn't have a lot of sailing, doing deployments where you can't go sailing. So I really had gotten out of the sailing community for almost a decade at that point. So it was a great way to jump back into it, meet other veterans that, you know, maybe have gone through similar situations. I was able to, you know, talk through things. Uh, so, you know, I found that to be a very beneficial therapeutic way, you know, enjoyed that a lot more than going to uh, counseling or, you know, going to, uh, right. you know, therapy or something like that. You know, it's still great, but it was really helpful for that sense. And yeah. then there were also great, uh, you know, help as I was transitioning off active duty, you know, going from active duty into the civilian world is challenging for a lot of people. And it was a great resource for that. Um, having that support network through that. So that's really my tie to U.S. Patriot sailing and why I'm so passionate. Uh, And I love seeing what the team does for other veterans as well. So really passionate about the team. And I wanted to do something that could really elevate the team to get more awareness about it, to help more people find out about this team. Because I'd been sailing with them for a couple of years at that point. And there were still plenty of people that even I knew that had no idea what this team was about or who yeah. they were or anything, and so, you know, just sailing with the team wasn't enough to raise the level to spread the the word about the team. So I wanted to do something that would definitely make an impact um, and help get both more people involved with it on the veteran side, but then also help bring in more donations for this nonprofit as well. So that's the big driving factor behind it. Got it. Got it. And uh, so what what's your what's your
0: sort of ultimate hope here. What's the best result? I don't mean from a race perspective, but I mean, just from an outcome for all of your motivations, both for you personally and and for, you know, U S Patriots sailing. What, what, what's sort of the thing you're hoping for here?
2: You know, you know, I race hard every time I'm out there, I'm going to be competitive out there, you know, put it, try my best out there. But the, the ultimate goal is to represent the team and complete the race in an honorable way. Uh, so you know, as of right now, I'm the only American fully qualified for this race. So really representing essentially the country as well on yeah. the international racing pl- uh, stage there. Uh, but then do it in a you know honorable and professional way, and you know make a good name for us in this French uh, you know ocean racing scene. So and then when I finish the uh, the race, my plan is to actually sail the boat back up to Annapolis um, over that winter and spring. And so bring the boat back to Annapolis and be able to share the boat and the experiences with the other veterans from the team as well. So I really can't wait to have that boat back there and be able to take veterans out there and show them, Hey, this is the boat I raced across the Atlantic ocean on let's go sailing today or let's go for a race on it today.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, that sounds wonderful. So is us Patriot sailing based in like Annapolis?
2: So it's a national level nonprofit and it was started originally down in Norfolk, Virginia, and then the the Annapolis team started. So right now we have a couple different main areas. So um, one team is in Annapolis, Maryland. We just started up a new team last year in Salmons, Maryland. Uh, there's another team that's been around for a couple of years out in San Diego, California. And then we're also in the process right now of standing up a team out in Seattle, Washington. So national level team, and it's we just have different chapters around. So I personally have only really sailed with the uh, the Annapolis chapter in both Annapolis and then also Baltimore as well, because, uh, we have a a couple boats in Annapolis, but then we also sail out of downtown sailing center on the J 22s out of, uh, out of Baltimore Harbor there.
0: Yeah. So So when you say, you say team, you guys are doing competitive
2: sailing with us Patriot sailing. Yeah. So the, the main focus is on racing. Uh, we definitely do plenty of, you know, training days. So if, if veterans out there listening, you know, we're not always doing racing. We have plenty of training opportunities practice learn how to sail uh we also you know there's some delivery options too but the main focus really is that competitive racing and at the end of the day it doesn't matter how the team does out on the race course like sure everyone wants to win but that's not always going to happen but the the aspect of the racing is such an important part because one it pushes people outside of the comfort zone in a you know you know beneficial way yeah. And then it provides new, you know, experiences, different experiences that they might not get um, beyond the cruising, you know, cruising's great. It's very relaxing, things like that, but some people might need the next challenge or the next thing to really um, learn. It's, you know, yeah. racing's a whole other skill to learn beyond sailing. So there's, it's a really great platform for that. And, you, you know, We provide – the team provides all the gear, so foul weather gear, life jackets, things like that, sailing gloves, um, helmet if you want to wear a helmet out there, things like that. But there's – and you don't have to just show up for a practice day to learn how to sail. We'll teach you how to sail from day one on the race course. So you know the, the ideal world is you have a couple people that know what they're doing, and then you have a couple new people that are starting to learn. Sure. Yeah, yeah. But to put it in perspective, you know, I was I was skippering the J109 this past winter in the Annapolis um, in the AYC Frostbite series. And it was me and I had two other people on the boat that had really just learned how to race earlier that year. And I think it was maybe their third time out on the boat. And the three of us were able to you know race that boat non-spin just fine around the race course. So it's all about, you know, taking everything slow and talking through everything ahead of time, anticipating. That's a really big part of it. It's just anticipating when you're working with some of the uh, newer sailors to this and talking them through it. But the value that they get out of that racing and being on the race course, even for a relaxing, you know, frostbite race that isn't going, you know, the big championship event or anything like that, but being out there with other boats on the starting line or seeing other boats out there, as you're trying to get past that one next boat, it really gives them these smaller tangible goals that they can really latch onto and then grow throughout that with the team. And if people wanna sign up for you know one event a year, they can, or if they wanna come out every single week, uh, during the summertime, there's Wednesday night racing, Friday night racing, weekend racing. So when I first joined the team before COVID had shut everything down, I think I was sailing anywhere from two to four days a week with the team. So there's wow. a lot of opportunities out there. Yeah. So let me ask you a quick, is there a way for non-veterans to get involved? So absolutely. I mean, we're always looking for volunteers to help, whether it's helping with boat projects or coaching. Uh, Our goal is when we race or when we're out on the water, um, our goal is to have 100% veterans on there. Sometimes we'll bring in other people if they have additional coaching experience or things like that. But I would say 99% of the time, it's all veterans out there. Um, Mm -hmm. And because it's such an important part of being in a, you know, in this space with other veterans that know what's going on. But if there's other, but if there's non-veter, if there's people that aren't veterans that want to definitely volunteer their time, we're always looking for help on things. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah, you got a you got a fleet of boats to maintain. Um, you got yeah. you got plenty of work. Yeah. More more hands could certainly help. Well, that's great. That sounds like a really wonderful organization. What's the best way
2: for people to sort of find out about it and learn about it? So the website's a great resource. Uh, Uspatriotsailing.org. You can go on there, or you can follow the team on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, just look U.S. Patriot Sailing, and that's a great way to uh, to find out more information. We have our calendars posted for the different fleets there of the different teams, and then also the email address. You know, if you want to send an email to the team, that's a great way. And uh, but just one thing to remember too is this team is 100 percent volunteer run. So everyone that everything that we do is all volunteer based. And so everything from responding to emails to coordinating things. And so that's where we have different skippers within these different areas that try to, you know, get everything all organized, which, you know, it's great. So every dollar that we bring in for the donations goes directly to the boats, the racing, every, you know, everything for that part of it. Um, But it's also a challenge because everyone's a volunteer as well. So we have some really dedicated volunteers that have really made this team grow.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Excellent.
2: And I imagine there's a way to, uh, make a contribution to uh, Patriot Sailing as well?
1: through the Absolutely.
2: It's on, it's on the website. Yeah, uspatriotsailing.org. Uh, you can donate right through the website and you can make a uh, tax deductible donation uh, right through there as well because it's not profit. Yeah. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, perfect. Perfect. Now, what about uh, PGN Sailing? Uh, yeah, so uh,
2: PGN Ocean Racing is my own little uh, campaign that I've started up. Um, so if you check out pgnoceanracing.com, that's where I do a lot of blog posts and things like that. And, um, and if, and the biggest thing is like, so I'm an ambassador for the team. I'm part of the, t- I, I sail with the team when I'm not doing this ocean racing thing. Uh, and so, but I'm, the whole thing is raising awareness for the team. Um, and so if you want to uh, donate to my own campaign, you can do it through the U S Patriot sailing website. That's a, you could just check the box. So you can decide where your money goes. Do you want it to go to Got the it. team itself? Or do you want it to go to my own campaign? Um, and it goes through that. Um, but the biggest thing is, you know, I'm not, I don't, I didn't want to take any money from the campaign or from the, uh, the, the, um, nonprofit itself. Um, so for like the grants and things like that, like I keep all my stuff completely separate. Um, but we're all, we're we're definitely tied together though. Yeah. And so let me,
0: are, are you, are you still actively looking for donations for, for
2: a PG on ocean racing or are you sort of set? No, I'm always looking for donations. I mean, this thing, I mean, any sailing campaign is, you know, it's always tough to to pay the bills. Um, you know, I, going into this, I knew I, I mean, one, I'm not making money off it. I'm not getting paid sure. for this. You know, yeah. I know you have your other uh, podcast, which I love listening to, do with the entrepreneurship and everything. Um, going into this, I knew I was not going to make money. I knew I was going to lose money on it overall, and yeah. totally okay. I mean, you know, one of the one of the um, the last couple of years. Before I got out of being on active duty was just basically saving us, saving up as much money as I could to make this happen. Um, So when I got off active duty, I put everything in a storage unit. Um, All my stuff is still in a storage unit right now. Uh, I moved in with my girlfriend who was nice enough to let me move in and basically just trying to get by to make this happen. Um, So yeah, so donations are definitely greatly appreciated because everything, you know, sailing is everything costs more money uh, for sailing and then also for an international campaign like this. Yeah. Um, I've had some great sponsors that have helped out with a lot of the gear. Um, they've helped out with a little bit of the funding, um, but it it definitely takes money to cover a lot of the logistics and the race fees and things oh, like yeah. that um, that go yeah. into all of it. So let's let's give some of those uh, sponsors a plug here. So you want to rattle off some of them? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the the, the my biggest my main sponsor right now is uh, Fawcett Boat Supplies in Annapolis, Maryland. Huge supporter. I mean, they've been with me from the very beginning. Um, you know, I basically started talking to them and, um, and they, so I, I to go back to this. Uh, I bought the boat in Annapolis, Maryland. So this is an Annapolis boat and I shipped the boat over to France. And a couple of months before I shipped it over to France, I got linked up with them and they're willing to, um, agree to sign on as a sponsor and support me. So they essentially opened up their doors and provided a ton of the safety equipment and, and just everything that goes into the racing, the boat and we were able to load, load it up onto the boat and ship the boat over with everything in it. Um, The boat went on on a trailer onto a um, car carrying ship. And so all the gear they provided me um, went over and then throughout that time since then, you know, they provided additional gear and I've, you know, carried over in suitcases. I think one of these years I flew over with three suitcases worth of, you know, clothes and gear and things like that. So um, they've been a huge supporter, Um, you know, Switlik survival as well. They've been Mm -hmm. awesome providing a couple of things. Um, And, you know, both equipment, um, awesome dry suit I got from them, a deck suit, and then also some funding. Um, And then, you know, uh, gill and New England ropes, um, Harkin, all that were tied with the Fawcett boat supplies as, you know, so basically being provided some of the gear that Fawcett sells. So things like that. Um, Great clips in the local in uh, one of the franchises in the uh, Philadelphia area where I'm originally from. So. Yeah, I've had a couple of great sponsors I've signed on that really helped get us there. And then another big part of that is through donations um, along the way over the last couple of years.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I Excellent. wouldn't have been able
2: to make it without that.
0: Yeah, that's great. It's great when you get that kind of support, right? It, it's it's not only is are the the things that you get really important, but I think mentally it really has to sort of motivate you and help you and keep you focused and driven as well.
2: Oh, absolutely. If I didn't have that support, uh, this campaign would not be where it's at. Wouldn't been possible without all that support. But then a big part of it, too, is making those decisions for risk management on what equipment are you going to have? What are you going to replace? What can you not replace? Because it's too <coughs> expensive. Yeah. And those are some of the, the tough decisions you have to make months or years in advance. That'll affect the race itself. So, you know, if you wait till the very end to get the funding or to get the support, it's too late at that point. So you have to prepare years in advance. And then also to do the qualifying races too. So, you know, like last year doing a 2,600 mile race, you know, you need to be prepared for that. So if you're waiting till right before the mini transit to get all this equipment, it's way too late at that point. So having these different companies and the uh, donation support throughout the last two years has been a huge part of where we're at today.
0: Super, super. So Peter, I want to start wrapping this up.
2: Uh, Is there anything I haven't asked you that you'd like to share with our listeners? I mean, there's, there's a lot, a lot I'd like to share. Um, I think there's a lot of experiences that I've had out in the water that've been interesting. So a lot of uh, tough ocean racing miles out here on this yeah. little boat. Um, sailing in the Bay of Biscay is not easy, uh, nor is you know the Atlantic Ocean. And it, this campaign has taken me through some interesting places, whether it's all the way out to the Azores, um, you know, Bay of Biscay, so down to Spain up to Ireland, uh, English channel, things like that. So it's, I've sailed about 8,000 miles on this little boat so far. So it definitely wow. put some miles on it. When you think, and when you think about it, I, when I started this campaign, I, I think I had about 8,000 miles of offshore experience on other boats doing, you know, Newport Bermuda race, Annapolis, Newport race. So, um, doing another 8,000 miles on this little boat has been a long journey. Right. And, um, but even though it's solo racing, it's, I'm not doing this by myself. I had so much support from, family members, from friends, from teammates with U.S. Patriots Sailing. And I just want to say thank you to everyone that's really helped out along the way. Um, whether it was, you know, one day of just lending a hand or doing, you know, helping with boat work along the way, it's been super um, beneficial and helpful. So I just want to say thank you to everyone.
0: Yeah. Yeah,
2: that's great. Uh, so when is the race and how can we follow? So the race starts September 24th. Okay. Uh, from La Sable in France. And if anyone wants to come over there and check it out and visit, you are more than welcome to come. Just send me an email. And uh, they have a big race village set up uh, right there. And it's it's just a fascinating. It's an awesome experience. When they tow all the boats out, um, Every the whole town comes out and lines up the channel. So everyone um, cheers all the boats as they're leaving. And it's just a really incredible experience. And then they'll also be uh, filming the start live on YouTube. So you can watch it also from anywhere in the right. world. Um, great but yeah so it starts then um oh one thing i also didn't mention is i actually just recently started my own little podcast this week right. um yeah i think i heard one of your little intros about the spotify for podcasts i was like oh that, yeah i've been thinking about doing a podcast you know this might be yeah. dangerous but we'll see and uh yeah i just started a little one so if people want to check it out it's called the mini transit mission um you know a lot That's of it just me and me kind of talking through some things but then also hopefully I'm gonna do some interviews with other people so it's dangerous what you can do with a microphone and a computer. Um, So it's not perfect. It's nowhere near the production quality of some of the other podcasts yet, but we're getting there. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well,
0: that's great. You know, the the podcast, both the podcast I do this one and the entrepreneurship one has given me this opportunity to to meet some really interesting people that normally
2: I wouldn't get to meet. And uh, you know, like
0: yourself, I mean, it's, 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 it's been really very satisfying from that, that perspective for sure.
2: Yeah. No, and I've really enjoyed listening to your podcast. I think I was, I was listening. I think I downloaded a couple and I was listening to them on my last, uh, delivery on the boat from Lorient back down to, uh, the Trent where <laughs> I'm at. And, uh, it was, it was great listening to, to both of them. So yeah, thank you yeah. for putting those out.
0: Well, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Well, great. So, uh, September, the big race, uh, do you have any races between now and then more preparatory
2: stuff? Yeah. So I just completed my first race of the season just was the last week or a week and a half ago. Um, and so that was a shorter, um, offshore race, actually double-handed, uh, which was a fun experience. So, um, my girlfriend, Jane, who's been such a big part of this campaign from the very beginning, she came out and was actually my co-skipper for the race. So it was great having her, uh, support through this and then also to be able to race together. Sure. Uh, That's great. And then I'm signed up for a couple other races, but that's one of the big challenges is, um, you have to, there's a whole preference thing that goes into it. And there's a bunch of waiting lists for a lot of the, uh, races right now. So um, I'm on the waiting list for a couple of these races coming up, so we'll see. Uh, but yeah, a lot, of, because there's so many boats out there, most people are only able to do one to two races throughout the season now, instead of doing all, you know, eight races on the Atlantic side of France. So yeah. it definitely makes it challenging. So I guess the biggest thing is follow my blog posts at, uh, pgnoceanracing.com and you can see whether I got into some of those other races or if I'm still on the waiting list. Uh, but the main yeah. thing is I'm fully qualified for the mini Transat. I've done all the requirements for it. I'm on the main list and I'm into that race. So that is the main focus right now, whether I do some of the shorter races this season or not. Um, I'm going to be there for the mini transat.
0: Yeah. Well, that's super. Hey, Peter, thank you so much for being on the podcast. You've been a wonderful, wonderful guest. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Hey, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And, and I'd love to have you back, uh, you know, in October sometime uh, for sort of an update on how it went, the things that you learned. Uh, and, uh, you know, what's sort of the next thing in your life. That'd be great to have that conversation. No,
2: I I would love to do that. Thank you so much for the invitation. And, uh, yeah, let's definitely do that. Okay. Thanks, Peter.
1: Wow. Bela, I've never heard of any of this is mini transat. And I know there's people that race across the oceans and stuff, but this is an incredible story and, but you knew about this, right? You've heard about this organization and the, these types of races, right?
0: Yeah. So they've been around for a while and it's uh you know every other year or every 4 years sometimes it depends uh type of an event this one is interesting in, in that there's over 90 competitors in this one this is a really big thing uh, and it's a it's a big race uh and france for 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 whatever reason uh people in france are fascinated by by solo sailing so a lot of the entrants are from are french uh, because they just have this big fascination, and and they put a lot of energy into that. Uh, so it's it's been around for a while. It's a big race. Uh, it doesn't get a lot of. You're not going to see it on a six o'clock evening news, <laughs> right? But you know, it's if if you're all the marine magazines and the sailing magazines, of course, will 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 cover it with vigor. Uh, the other interesting thing about this is that Peter, as we heard from the interview with him. Uh, you know he's doing this in support of U.S. Patriot Sailing. So Peter's a veteran, right? He he went to Annapolis. Uh, he got the sailing bug when he was in Annapolis because uh, he was on the sailing team and uh, they did some uh, races, uh, ocean races there. And uh, U.S. Patriot Sailing is an organization uh, that basically helps veterans re-acclimate into society. And and the way they do this. Is, is through sailing so so you know they they provide sailing programs where they get veterans together and they can do that competitively if they want uh, and you know when you're on a sailboat it requires teamwork it requires working together uh, there's a sense of accomplishment uh you know like i just get the the boat back to the dock and i feel a sense of accomplishment you know i didn't hit anything and i made it back safe uh, so i think it's really cool that he's doing it for that and you know there's it's interesting, as you may know, Mike, I also like to fly fish and fly fishing has a similar program. It's called healing waters. And it's the sort of the same idea where, where they take veterans out and they introduce them to fly fishing and, and sort of, you know, the things that various different hobbies and sports bring, uh, to individuals and, you know, it's all veterans and they kind of get together and, and they can bond and do all those types of things. So my hat's off to to Peter, you know, for, for doing this, um, as fundamentally a volunteer and doing it in support of us Patriot sailing.
1: Yeah, I, t- I totally agree, Bella. I mean, you know, when I was younger, I just thought, Oh, sailing is something that kind of rich people do. And then the more I've gotten to know people, cause you know, it takes a lot of money to, to have a boat and a marina and all this stuff. It adds up. Right. But, um, but I also have met a lot of middle-class people that sail too. Um, but I think anything where you have a cause where you're exposing some of the real benefits of sailing to maybe people who don't would not normally even think that there's an opportunity for them is, is a great thing, you know, and I think that supporting a great cause like this is fantastic. And I think tying it in with sailing is just a really cool idea. Um, But just the whole idea of this uh, crossing the ocean race, it to me is a little bit mind boggling. What do you think are kind of the biggest challenges um, for, for something like this so one of our listeners wanted to say, Hey, I never really thought about doing something like this, but I really like the idea of, of trying this. What are the, what are the challenges?
0: Well, I think part of the challenges are, are mental. Mm-hmm. You, 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 you sort of, right. You're going to be out there for two, three weeks by yourself. So you, you, you have to be comfortable with that. Um, so I think, I think that's a, that's certainly a big piece of it anything doing, anything solo, right? If you hike the Appalachian Trail solo, you're gonna run into, you'll certainly run into a lot more people on the Appalachian Trail hiking solo than you will sailing across the Atlantic Ocean solo. Um, but, But you have to get into that sort of mindset. You have to be comfortable with that and have, you know, uh, this is probably not the, the the right way to say it, but I, I, I describe it as hermit-like tendencies. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you sort of have to be comfortable in that space. I think that's one big thing. Uh, and, and, and I think that then there's, then there's the whole sort of notion of the skills necessary to do this. I mean, you're out there by yourself, something breaks, you, you sort of have to figure out what you're going to, no one's coming. There's, there's nobody coming, you know, the Coast Guard helicopter only has a range of about 150 miles, I think it is. <laughs> so if you're more than 150 miles away from shore, they're not coming. <laughs> Maybe a ship will come di- divert to you, but that might take a couple days. So you have to, you have to figure out how to be really self-sufficient in so many ways, not just mentally and physically, uh, but it, with your equipment and all that kind of stuff. You have to have Plan A. You have to have Plan B. You have to have Plan C. You have to have a lot of redundancy in things. Um, and I think, I think the third big thing—it'd probably be number one for me—is sleep deprivation. And and I, I and I can remember on the couple of the long passages I've I've done, one from Florida up to Newport, and one from um, Halifax, Nova Scotia. To, an, to Baltimore, I can remember whenever I had, the, and there was three people on the boat, on both of those boats, including myself, whenever I had the opportunity to take a nap or to snooze, I would. Because you never know when you have to stay up for a long period of time. So you don't want to be in a, a sleep deficit. And certainly when you're by yourself, I mean, I just don't know how they manage sleep. That's always been one challenge because you sort of have to be on watch. You don't want to hit something, right? And you know, you can you can have various different systems, but you can only see so far. And those big ships actually go pretty fast. They they go fifteen to twenty knots, <laughs> so they'll be on top. You can you might see them on the horizon, and and within fifteen minutes, they're there. Uh, so. You know, you, people sleep in these 20 minute increments and they bop up, they look around and they go back and, and take a nap. And on these boats, they can have some technology so they can they can have some some technology that can help them manage those situations. But you get in the middle of a storm, you can't sleep because the boats rocking and rolling and crazy. And, and everyone knows it's well documented when when sleep deprivation kicks in, you make bad decisions. And that's when people get in trouble. So to me, those are sort of a couple of big things. Interesting.
1: And then the motivation is interesting, right? There's no yeah. cash prize. This is fascinating no. to me. You know, what's the what's the motivation, right? It's it's gotta be personal, right? It's
0: just yeah. a, a personal goal. Pe- Intrinsic, be, why, right. Why do people climb mountains? There's no yeah. there's no pot of gold at the top, right?
1: Yeah. they're not getting it's just multi-million dollar deals from Nike to wear their uh right. climbing shoes right right it's just and, intrinsic motivation yeah.
0: and enough people have done it they're not going to be famous they're not the first one
1: right. <laughs> right.
0: so i I think I think it's just internal people are driven they they want to accomplish something they get a goal and you know we you and I have had goals right of various different things and and to other people they might look at those and go why did you get a PhD? That's crazy. Yeah, how boring. Mm, <laughs> yeah, yeah. How boring is that, right? But you know. Um, so I think I think that's yeah. People who do these things I, I think are a special, a special breed of individual. And I mean that special in a good way. Mm-hmm. Right. They 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 mm. really are.
1: Yeah. And I love the connection to doing something for a good cause. I think that if everybody who had the opportunity like Peter does to do something you love and then tie it to something that makes the world a better place for other people like he does, I mean, I think if we all could do even in a small way, this is a big way, I think, but in a small way, this would really increase the quality of life for everybody on the planet. Yeah. Um, and that's what I think at the end of the day, that's really a, just a cool takeaway for me. He's doing something really incredibly challenging and then also and rewarding intrinsically. Right. Uh, and then tying it to a, a good cause. Yeah. Fantastic.
0: And, and, and you know, these events uh, and there's there's a lot of sailing events like this and, and, and other extreme sport things, I'll call them, where in, you just can't enter. I mean, you and I can't enter. Well, let me rephrase that. We no can't way. enter. But before they accept us and allow us to go in the race, there's a bunch of qualifying things you have to do. So Peter talked about this, right? He had to do several long, multi-day solo sails out in the ocean to demonstrate that, yes, indeed, he knows what he's doing. Because from from the organizer's perspective, what's the worst thing that can happen in one of these things, right?
1: Right, somebody dies, right.
0: Some, somebody like you and me enters, and we don't mm-hmm. know what we're doing, and we, we get in big trouble. Right. So, so there is a, there is sort of a sorting mechanism that, that makes sure that people are skilled and prepared and they know what they're doing and they're serious about it, uh, in order to, to, to do these races.
1: Yep. As there, as there should be. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah,
0: I think, uh, I think that was a pretty interesting conversation. I I was, I really enjoyed my discussion with Peter and, uh, what do you think? I think it's time to wrap this one up, Mike.
1: I think so, Bela. So listeners, thanks for joining us for yet another episode. Uh, We hope that you found our conversation with Peter as interesting and thought-provoking as we did. Uh, As always, if you have questions about what we've discussed, please feel free to get in touch with us. Our email is sailingtheeast, that's all one word, at gmail.com.
0: Hey, and if you enjoy the podcast, hit that follow button on your podcasting app. Uh, You can also find us now on YouTube. So if you search for Sailing the East, uh, we'll pop up there as well. Hey, and if you know of someone like Peter uh, or just a common, you know, everyday sailor that has an interesting story to tell, uh, reach out to us and let us know. We'd love to interview him for the podcast. Uh, Hope to see you all out there. I'm heading to the boat later this afternoon as we record this on May 18th. And uh, I'm going to spend a week uh, sailing with a friend of mine next week. So that should be interesting. And uh, so signing off from upstate New York. See you all soon.
1: Sounds great, Bailey. I hope it's fun and safe, and I can't wait to hear about your adventures next week. So from over here in Münster, Germany, we'll see everybody next time.